Please, even this morning, bring those works to completion as well. We know that all of these are gifts that come from you. For those in this assembly this morning that are struggling in finances or relationships, struggling in repentance or who are waging war with their own emotions or thoughts, I pray that you would minister to them through your word and your people. Lord, please glorify yourself now and use my human voice to proclaim your glorious truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. You can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And would you join me in reading our passage together this morning? I'll read aloud and you can follow along with me in your Bibles. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Early on in planting Mission Fellowship, there was a young man who was helping coach for a local high school, and he had attended our church for a while, and he knew my background in basketball, and so he approached me, and he asked uh, if, if I could speak uh, with the, the varsity team of the school that he worked at. And so he went to the varsity coach and asked him as well. Uh, he had heard me give the gospel presentation at a local outreach event, and he had heard me preach, and so he thought this would be a great idea. Hans can come and give a motivational talk. And to be honest, I thought it was a great idea too in my prideful, self-exalting ego. Well, as you know, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, I asked him what I should talk about and he gave me a few ideas. And so on the agreed day, I showed up at the school. I brought some of my old basketball memorabilia and had some talking points to share. And I cast a large shadow, and so these young, aspiring basketball players earnestly focused on what I was saying as I stood before them. I am sure some of them were probably hoping for motivational stories or tips on how to be the best, or some quote they could hold on to in their effort to advance to the collegiate level. But as I shared stories of some big games, I realized most of my stories were observed from the last position on the bench. I also quickly realized that what I had to say wasn't, in fact, all that interesting. In fact, I think my speech that day could be classified as uninteresting and possibly even demotivating. I was the incarnation of a demotivational poster. You see, not only was it God's grace that I got to the level of competition I did, when I got there, I was relegated to the end of the bench to hand out Gatorade. And I also left partway through my sophomore year due to an oversized ego that was far larger than my actual capability. And then when that didn't work out, well, for various reasons, I came back begging for a walk-on position a year later. To top it all off, I was the guy who got a coveted professional contract to play overseas, but then I gave it up. And I gave it up because I had this overwhelming feeling I had been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ and was supposed to go preach it somewhere. And where I ended up was not a big city full of the possibility of influence. It was here in Salem, no offense. In short, I was the last person that should have been giving a motivational speech to these poor teenagers. 
And because I wasn't asked to explicitly preach on a Bible text, I found that I had little to say. So after what seemed like an eternity of me talking and passing around my memorabilia, I wrapped up what I was saying, at which point I looked at the clock and realized I had only been talking for about 10 minutes of the 45 minutes they had allotted me. I looked at the coach and he said, you got anything else? It was, to put it pointedly, the most underwhelming display of public oratory that has possibly ever occurred in the realm of motivational speaking. I was the anti-Tony Robbins. My plan and outline was underwhelming, my speech itself was underwhelming, and as I shrunk back from embarrassment, I am sure I was underwhelming. I felt so bad and was so embarrassed that I had most likely embarrassed the poor guy who invited me that I left as quickly as I could. So if you're ever wondering why we don't have a form on our website to fill out for invitations for your lead pastor to speak publicly at events as many other pastors and churches have, now you know one of the many reasons why we don't have that. If that coach wanted those kids to be motivated in their pursuits, me and the message I carried was the worst choice of all. And the cloud of demotivation and weakening sadness that landed in that room when I was done talking was evidence of that very fact. You see, in the realm of the world, you need to be the best and the brightest, not the meekest and the foolish. This morning in our selected text, we will hear Paul paint a very similar picture to the Corinthian church of his preaching and teaching. You see, unlike the superhero of faith that we have turned him into 2,000 years after his ministry ended, Paul was not much to look at nor to listen to. In both the Hebrew and Greek cultures in which he ministered, he was the prototype of the bottom rung of society in so many ways. And he was especially the last person one would listen to for advice on how to live a life of influence, for he was one who gave up a life of influence in order to show up at Corinth. The attitude and relationship of many in this church that he had planted at Corinth proved this out as reality. For groups had arisen within the church questioning whether Paul had anything to say that could help them or should have any authority over their behavior. For as he will put it, Paul was a man with a foolish strategy delivering a foolish message and was himself a foolish messenger. And yet, unlike my pathetic attempt at motivational public oratory, Paul's speech, his preaching, had a far different outcome. The result of his speaking was not a cloud of pathetic sadness and demotivation. The result of his proclamation of the gospel was the salvation of souls. It was the conversion of pagans to worship the monotheistic Jewish God who had taken humanity to himself. It was the formation of a church family that would not in any way exist if left to its own members' devices. Paul's point in all of this will be to state clearly that the very things that he is going to be pointing out, his foolishness, his message and its foolishness, and his foolish strategy for evangelism, these are the evidence that prove that the Corinthians' salvation could have only come from the power of God. And therefore, he will argue throughout the rest of the letter, all that they are to then think and do should be based upon the truth of the powerful gospel of God. The truth of the power of God to act through the gospel rather than any other superfluous manifestations of power or supposed power that they were emphasizing in the church in Corinth. This morning, Paul will argue that God's power is displayed in salvation through the gospel. 
In so doing, Paul is setting the foundation for everything else that he calls the local church to do regarding their beliefs, their lifestyle, and their relationships for the rest of the letter. And I pray because we live in a society and in a church today where the cross is almost thought of as, it's just the beginning point. Let's get over that discussion about the cross and dying to self, and let's move on to the more powerful things. And so I pray that this will set a foundation for us as well in the way we believe and act and relate to one another. So would you join me in praying one more time that the Lord would illuminate this text to us. Father God, thank you for the inspiration of this text before us this morning through your herald of the gospel, our brother Paul. As we read his words, we pray that you would illuminate its meaning to each of us in thought, but also at the level of our hearts and attitudes. Lord, please change us for your glory and our ability to reflect you to a world that has rebelled against you and the many within it who are yours and need to hear your gospel. In Jesus' name and authority, we pray. Amen. Well, the very first verse of our text this morning can be summarized as Paul pointing out that he has a foolish strategy. A foolish strategy. And I, he says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, as we've noted in all the previous studies in this letter, Paul is speaking to a group of people that believe themselves to be Christians and yet are immersed in the wisdom of the day that is sourced from the Greco-Roman culture that surrounds them. High minds of philosophy and social status, greed, power, promiscuous and pagan sexuality, and an intense need to raise your social optics. These were the motivations that drove all activity. Unfortunately, even the activity within this local church had the same motivations. And to add to the struggle, preachers preaching a message were not a new thing with the introduction of Christianity. The Greeks were more than acquainted with men who traveled from town to town and were paid to proclaim philosophies on how to become your best self, how to lead the blessed life, how to win friends and influence people, and how to ascend the social staircase. These men were known as sophists, peddlers of the Sophia, or wisdom in Greek, of the gods. And so Paul is spending chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians trying to wake the Corinthians up from their slumber. That is nothing more than a socially informed catatonia in which they think they are worshiping Christ, but they are actually not. They may have started with Christ, but what they've done is then moved on from Christ into the quote-unquote more important things. But then, as we look at their lives, their philosophies and worldview, we realize that Paul is trying to tell them that they are just like the world that surrounds them, the very world that they are supposed to be delivering the truth to. So Paul lays out for them, starting in verse 15, that the message that he preaches and upon which the church was formed is a foolish word to anyone who thinks like the surrounding world. In chapter 1, starting in verse 15 and running all the way into our text today, he's telling them that the message of the cross is nothing but foolishness to the world. In fact, all of Christianity is foolishness to the world. His argument is, why would you ever submit to this philosophy and truth if it were not the truth delivered by the power of God? And to prove his argument, he then moves on to point out to the audience of Corinthian Christians that they are not even anything to write home about. Kelton taught us well on this last uh, week. He says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
They are a ragtag group of those who are trying to ascend the social ladder, but anyone paying attention would simply dismiss them. Christianity had a foolish message carried and proclaimed by a foolish group of people, and from a worldly point of view, this endeavor of the Christian church should in no way succeed. But then to drive the point home, Paul moves the spotlight from the audience of the Corinthian church to himself. Notice verse 1, and I, he says. He's actually drawing the eyes of the people to him. And here, he acts in these five verses before us as a witness on a witness stand providing evidence. Evidence of why all of this foolishness is actually pointing the Christians to the power that they actually need to live their lives as God's saved people. And it's not the power that they were supposedly manifesting, as we'll learn later in the letter. He says, verse 1, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This is not Paul trying to avoid the view of the audience, trying to be overly humble so that the gospel can get the spotlight. It is Paul shining the light on himself for a brief moment so that people can see the truth of the power of the gospel. And specifically, he shines the light on his strategy of evangelism, church planting, and conversion. You see, the strategy of the world usually makes a ton of sense to us, doesn't it? When I first contemplated planting a church, I read a number of books that said they were about church planting, but could have easily been categorized at Powell's bookstore as books on starting an entrepreneurial endeavor. They talked about market share, population, and socioeconomic statistics, barriers to entry, networking, launch strategies, marketing strategies, and so on. Largely, they were from the output of the seeker-friendly churches like Saddleback Church in Orange County and Willow Creek Church in Chicago, who proudly declare that the reason they are so large was because they use the wisdom of business and the business world to attract their thousands of tithing units, meaning people. Paul's day had its own, not too dissimilar worldly view for how to make an impact, and it was based on the methods of the sophists. They operated like the rock stars of today. Prior to their arrival, marketing materials would have been distributed. Great fanfare would have been organized to welcome them to the city. The sophists would have begun their tour with a public speech, usually standing next to a political leader, praising the great reputation and glory of the city. They would let the people know that they were already such great people, but that they really didn't need to hear the sophist. If they wanted to, they could probably elevate their lives by doing so. This, you see, was a fantastic strategy to get people to listen. But Paul, like an absolute fool, decides that this strategy is not what he's going to do. He came to Corinth choosing, purposing, to simply declare the evidence of the historical event of God's salvation through Jesus. Paul, don't you want to do a series on a happy family? Don't you want to do a series on how to balance your checkbook and become rich? Don't you want to do a series on your best life now? He purposed to do so without any of the sophist strategies for acceptance. In the Greek words for lofty speech or wisdom, you can even see a direct hit. He's directly attacking the sophists with words that were known to speak about that vocation. What a foolish strategy to get others to listen to him. 
What a foolish strategy to convert the lost and evangelize the perishing. So what was Paul's strategy? What was Paul's message that was so powerful that he did not need to dress it up with the bells and whistles so often used by the world? Well, this is where we're reminded that he was actually proclaiming what we talked about a few weeks ago. He was proclaiming a foolish message. We see this in verse 2. Paul says, I purpose to not do like the sophists or the world around me. And then he says, for I decided, I purposed to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We discussed this in great detail two weeks ago as we discussed the humiliating nature of the cross. Really, the idea of a crucified Messiah for the Jews and a crucified sophist or wise man, an ideal man for the Greeks, this message was not just foolish. I would argue, in actuality, it was repulsive. For it's the message of a Jewish Messiah who did not conquer earthly kingdoms in the material here and now, but one who was crucified in humiliating weakness. It is the message of a supposedly ideal man who was tried and punished as a criminal, a man who many said was without a father and therefore without title or status and died for his beliefs. This was not the perfect man of the Greek ideal, nor the awaited Jewish Messiah. In the wisdom of the world, no self-respecting Hebrew or Greek would follow a message with this guy at the center. And yet, this is what Paul purposed to do. He purposed to declare this truth. Paul was doing the most illogical thing. He was calling people to follow a failed leader in his death. Now, not to sound too irreverent, but it's like the ancient version of someone saying, while holding something gross, this smells horrific, here, smell it. That's truly what's going on here. He died for his beliefs, he's failed, let's go follow him. Into death? Absolutely. The logical worldling would say, no, that is a horrible strategy to get people to buy into what you're arguing or presenting. It should, in fact, turn people away. But recognize that it was not an argument or a debate or a set of apologetic formulas meant to discredit one's opponent. It was the proclamation, the testimony of a witness, gift, excuse me, <clears throat> given of an actual event that took place. It was the testimony of God in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be the Christos, the Mashiach, the Messiah. Not only was this a foolish strategy to draw converts, but it was a foolish message. Really, Paul, this is all you're going to use to plant churches, save the lost, and convert the pagans? You're going to just simply go to them and tell them the story of how this man named Jesus of Nazareth, who was a poor, humble carpenter, was crucified, he died, he resurrected three days later, and then you're just going to talk about how that truth impacted you to become one of his own? Not a very attractive message if it's based on worldly wisdom. But isn't that great news for us? Hans, I don't know how to evangelize. How do I go and how do I try and convince people to follow Jesus? He died. He resurrected. He ascended as an enthroned as your king. And he saved you. What more evidence do you need? He saved the foolish, the rebel, the one who deserved nothing. What more evidence does someone need if they're actually God's elect? 
The funny thing is, brothers and sisters, that as we look at this, we know that Paul knew that this was a bad idea, that this was ridiculous and foolish, and yet he chooses to declare that he had made up his mind to be purposeful in declaring nothing else. Now, why on earth would that be? Well, as any of us know, it is hard to swim against the tide. Friends, I can't tell you how many pastors' conferences I go to, and pastors are like, oh, yeah, what programs are you doing right now? And I go, well, we're doing a Bible study, and I'm preaching the gospel on Sunday. That's it? That's all you're doing? Yeah, that's all we've ever done. Well, we've got this, a bike giveaway. You got to do a bike giveaway, because that's how you get people in the seats, so you can convince them what the gospel is. You know what people come to church for then? A A bike giveaway. They don't come for the gospel, right? Worldly wisdom always has something else in order to try and convince someone to follow the gospel. It's hard to swim against that tide. All of us want to buy into the worldly wisdom around us. When the mob swells with its pitchforks and torches in hand, it is hard to say, hold on, are you sure this is biblically wise? Friends, we've seen this over and over and over across the last few years, have we not? The mob swells. Everybody says, well, I guess this is truth. We better follow it. When the Bible's sitting back and saying, no, that's the opposite of wisdom. Don't follow that. And yet Christians left and right fall in line with worldly thinking because it is what makes sense to our flesh. But following a crucified king, that is foolish according to earthly wisdom. And this is why Paul seems to add the odd ending to this verse. Don't you notice that he could have said, I purpose to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ. And everyone would say a hearty amen. For the risen and enthroned king that will come to conquer all, that is a message and a strategy we and the Corinthians of Paul's day, we can get behind that. Amen? But Paul recognizes that the Jesus they are concocting with their syncretistic approach and the Jesus that we often concoct in the church today is not Jesus at all if it doesn't begin with the cross, the humiliation of the cross. For the true gospel of Jesus begins with the humiliating reality of the cross, of his death. And those who wish to follow him must be humiliated and humbled as well. We must constantly be reminded of the fact that Christ died on the cross to atone for your sins and mine, sins of rebellion against the holy God. Brothers and sisters, this is where we must pause and ask the question when it comes to our faith, have we also purposed to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? So much of Christendom looks exactly like the Corinth to whom Paul was writing here. Think about it in terms of the strategy of a faithful church. You don't have to look too far to find someone who says, I'm not so sure about this strategy of simply planting local churches that preach the gospel of the cross every Sunday. I don't know if it's attractive enough to draw the lost. Maybe we need a different strategy. Maybe we need to bump up our outreach efforts. Maybe we need more parachurch ministries and more short-term missions and more justice ministries and more ways to show that we care about people. We need to get involved politically and make a statement. We need a place where seekers can come. And we don't want to be too church-like. We want to be relevant. We want to make the church a place where those that are not converted feel comfortable. 
Have you heard these before? I have, all too many times. But let's take a look at just one of these nuggets of earthly wisdom and run it through the supposedly foolish wisdom of the Bible. We need to be more seeker-friendly, let's say. Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You see, the seeker-friendly movement that remains a massive part of evangelicalism today is flawed at its core. For there are no seekers. There are those who are being saved, and there are those who are perishing. And only the gospel will reveal which is which. You see, the moment you hold earthly wisdom up to biblical wisdom, the wisdom of the cross, the earthly wisdom is immediately humiliated. The message of the cross, Paul realized, is a foolish, foolish message that is at the heart of a foolish strategy, and yet Paul purposed to preach it and nothing else. Why would this be? Well, before he answers that question fully, he has one more point to make in this examination of his own merits as a supposed wise man. And this is where he points to himself as a foolish messenger. A foolish messenger. 2-1. A foolish strategy. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 2-2. A foolish message. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is the kind of guy we all want to follow, right? And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. There are multiple options on what this means here and what he's meaning. Was Paul being literal or was he being hyperbolic, exaggerating for effect? Well, to paint the picture of the surrounding immediate context, to understand what he's saying, let's go to Acts 18, if you would. Go to Acts 18 with me. And let's read the historical account given by the historian Luke of how Paul entered Corinth and launched this foolish strategy centered on a foolish message. Acts 18, and we'll begin in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul started by being bivocational. The sophists would enter with pomp and circumstance, knowing that this would be a paying gig. But Paul comes, completely unknown, and bunks up with two exiled Jews from Rome who were laboring small business owners in a tent-making shop. You couldn't get much more lowly than that. And his preaching was simply done by going to church on Sunday, their version, the Jews' version, going to synagogue on the Sabbath, and telling people that he knew who the Messiah was and reasoning with them. This is not a great start if he wants to make friends and influence people, is it? And we see the result. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Another really great strategy in order to influence people, right? And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, 
a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now that's a very curious phrase, isn't it? Because Paul had just started the work and the church hadn't even been formed. How does God know that he has many in this city who are his people? Well, they're his elect. He had already chosen them. Now, Paul has a massive conflict one day during a gathering of the Jewish assembly here. But rather than leave, he (laughs) yells at them and then simply goes next door and speaks the gospel to this Gentile proselyte who was most assuredly looked down on by the Corinthian Jews, for he was a believer but not an ethnic Jew. And then he draws the very leader of the synagogue away to this crazy following of a crucified Messiah. Paul seems like he is a fiery rabble-rouser, but Luke the historian captures what was happening underneath because of all the reviling and conflict and division. Notice what God had to say to him. Do not be afraid. Paul was afraid. He was scared to death at what might happen. Look at what God says next. Or, uh, sorry, excuse me. Look at what uh, God says again there in verse 9. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Notice that the Lord is encouraging Paul by saying, hey, there's a work to be done here. Those who are my people are here. They simply need the message that Paul was supposed to bring of the gospel to initiate their salvation. So Paul stayed, knowing in God's providence that whatever came, God would be accomplishing his will. But the conflict didn't stop. Look at verse 12. But when Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So they seized Sosthenes, who's the new ruler of the synagogue, after the guy who Paul drew away left, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This hatred gets so bad that Paul seized, brought before political leaders for a trial, probably wondering if his life is in danger, and their anger is so vehement that it then overflows onto their new leader of the synagogue, they end up beating him up, And there are multiple theories of what's occurring here. We don't have time to go into it. But suffice it to say, this was the context in which Paul was preaching. So think with me. Go back to 1 Corinthians. And let's think about what he's saying here when he says, when he he talks about himself in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4. Look at what he says here. And I was with you in weakness and in fear. And much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. See, friends, Paul was not speaking in metaphors here. He was decidedly fearful, so much so that the Lord had to strengthen him. He was timid in what he was about to preach. Paul, the apostle Paul, was scared to death. And that's why the word weakness here in the Greek means timid. And it says he was trembling. He was so nervous that he was literally trembling because of what was at stake spiritually for God's elect and physically for himself. If you were God and you wanted to draw people in the way that the sophists did, wouldn't you choose someone other than this guy? 
I'm not trying to sound mean or be irreverent towards the Apostle Paul, one of the great leaders of our faith, but friends, he's human. And he's in a place that's full of enemies of the gospel. Wouldn't you want to choose someone more charismatic? But no, he's a foolish messenger. And let's just expand on this for a moment. Why wasn't Paul strong and confident? He had seen and been commissioned by Jesus. He had participated in a miracle of being blind and then gaining his sight back. He had been given the hand of fellowship by the apostles. Why was he timid, fearful, and trembling? Well, because he was going to a people who were awaiting a conquering king that would bring them back from exile. And the message he had was, hold tight. This is actually how the gospel gets spread. They were waiting for a perfect man that was made in the image of the wisdom and the physical stature of the Greek gods. And he had a message about a guy who was crucified, most likely neuter in his underwear, and bled to death, crucified on a cross. What they got was Paul preaching a message about a crucified carpenter from Galilee. And then on top of that, one early church writer speaks of Paul's appearance this way. He says he was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. He was in a good state of body, but his eyebrows met in the middle, and he had a nose that was somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. I don't know how you know it's full of friendliness, but maybe there's a comma there that I missed. His eyes supposedly watered constantly, and there are even statements that his voice was high-pitched and hard to listen to for very long. (laughs) Really, Lord, this is who you send? Really, Lord, this is the guy that wrote the majority of the New Testament epistles? And the man who he represented was a humiliated and crucified leader of a small band of the lowest of society. Again, this was not a strategy, a message, or a messenger that would draw anyone from a worldly standpoint, especially into a religion that most likely meant being ostracized from the trade guilds in Greek society. You would become an outcast. Is this the same religion we see when we stand before the behemoth churches that spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on their stage lighting and their soundboards? I don't think so. In fact, I don't know that Jesus would recognize most of Christendom so-called in the United States of America. To top it all off, Paul again points to the message he delivered as a messenger, and he says, guys, it wasn't even implausible words of wisdom. The Greek here means that his message was not convincing nor persuading in any way that the Greek people were used to. A foolish message at the heart of a foolish strategy delivered by a foolish messenger. We should wonder as we read this what Paul's even trying to accomplish. As he writes this, he's not really helping himself gain the respect of the audience. He seems to actually be making it worse. But then he comes to his main point. Look with me at four, the second half. But I came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power that the Corinthian church needs to be united in Christ is not going to come from any earthly wisdom or strategy or message or messenger. 
No, Paul wants them to understand that God's power is displayed in salvation through the gospel. It is holding to this truth and fact that will be the basis of everything he's calling them to, to unite the church with one another and with the Lord, to break apart divisions and reconcile them to each other and bring the love of Christ into obvious, obvious movement within the church. And so he finishes with this section that points to the power of God evident in salvation. All of what Paul has been saying has been building to this moment. The readers would have said the same thing we are saying. Yeah, Paul, really foolish way of going about this whole evangelization and church planning effort. Foolish strategy, foolish message, and you're a foolish messenger. And that's where Paul can land this final statement. For he would reply that they are forgetting the most important thing. For all of this foolishness actually enhances, it does not detract from, it enhances the fact that God has still worked. He has displayed his power by saving the very people listening to his letter. Paul, that was a really terrible message, really bad presentation, and you got a horrible strategy. Why are we saved again? You might even say the same thing, right? You might come on a Sunday and go, man, Hans, that was, whoo, that was dog meat. Mm, yeah, that was terrible. But yet, my affections are so for the Lord and for his people that I find myself coming to church every Sunday, even though I would much rather sleep in. There's a power there. And it's not the power of Hans. It's not the power of what we do as a church and all of our fancy programs. It's the word of God, Amen. and we all desire it. Amen. We desire to sit in the ministry of the word, whether it's a short-haired tall dude or a long-haired hippie that we have as a youth pastor <laughs> or anything else. It doesn't matter who's preaching it. If it's the word, it's powerful. Amen? Amen. Because it's the gospel. And if you think that offends him, I called him a hippie earlier, so he already knows. <laughs> Go look with me at one of Paul's recorded sermons in Acts 26, and let's see this supposedly powerful preacher. In fact, he's not all that powerful at all. He just simply states the facts. This is Acts 26, starting in verse 2. He stands before Agrippa, and he says this. He says, I consider myself fortunate... It is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And by the controversies, he means Christianity. That's what he's talking about. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest purity of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. In other words, he had high rank, guys. And now I stand here on trial because my hope is in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Notice Paul's strategy. He first points out that he is the exact opposite of someone who should have accepted Christ. The exact opposite of someone who God had, should, should have saved. He, he should have been destroyed for opposing God. And then everything in his life was pointing towards success within the Jewish society and religion. He was even a persecutor of Jesus' people. But then he gives his simple testimony that the Lord appointed him to not only become one of his people, but to be a chosen instrument to declare the historical truth of Jesus' death, resurrection, and enthronement. And this simple message is what would open the eyes of the people, draw them away from Satan. And notice where he ascribes power. It is not to himself, but to the salvation that God worked in his life. That it is God who saved him, God who helped him. You see, friends, if we have any charismatic or Pentecostal leanings whatsoever, we will read the verse back in 1 Corinthians that says that he was among them in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, and we will think that he is referring to some unlisted spiritual gift that he displayed. But that would undercut all of what Paul says in chapters 12 through 14 to try and correct a church hyper-focused on spiritual gifts that needed to be brought down a peg. So if the display of spiritual gifts was not the evidence of God's power, then what was it? Well, clearly it is the power of the simple message of the cross to save those who should have never followed Christ in the first place, including you and me. For we were, and even still are, within the remnants of our flesh, hateful towards God. Rebels who want our own way. And friends, I must tell you, this is not a shaming statement. This is the truth. And if you fight it, I wonder if you've actually been converted. We are the last people whom God should have providentially saved. You know why? Because we're part of humanity. A humanity 
that took all of the goodness that God gave us and shoved it back in his face and said, we know better, we want more. And you and I do that every day. And yet the message of the gospel gripped our hearts, not because we were logical or inclined to believe it, but because God in his power broke through our rebellion and blindness and with the simple gospel opened our eyes to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And if he did not do that, you and I would still be dead in our trespasses and sin and blind to the truth because we have no power within us. To even believe that we accept the message of the gospel, boy, we're playing with fire there. And because of this, because of God's power in saving us, we get to receive forgiveness of sins and a place in the family of God who are being sanctified by faith in Christ. Paul is saying, yes, brothers and sisters, it is a foolish strategy to preach a foolish message through a weak and foolish messenger, but that serves to highlight God's powerful salvation and not the power of the strategy, message, or messenger, but salvation itself. He says earlier, remember your calling he says this to the men and women of Corinth, and then he says, do you really have something to brag about? Do you really want to declare that the power of God is manifested in your display of spiritual activity? No, God's power is displayed in the fact that you and I and Paul, that we are saved and gathered together to worship the name of a God we were once blind to. That's where power is. And this is very like the God shown throughout the Bible, isn't it? Do you remember the story of Gideon? Gideon had thousands of people ready to go and take on the Midianites, and what did God say? The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. <laughs> Welcome to the current day church. In rebuilding the temple of God in Jerusalem, God spoke this famous line to his people in Zechariah 4.6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, brothers and sisters, while the church at large and the world that surrounds it go through all these machinations to gain power and prestige and influence, the one who has had their eyes open to the truth of the gospel realizes all of that is actually foolishness. For the power that draws men and women to the truth comes from God and is initiated through the preaching of his simple gospel. None of us were saved because our redeeming character traits led us to be so. None of us were saved because our general desire is to follow the rules. None of us were saved because of our charismatic draw or our potential impact for Christ. We were saved because God declared it to be so. He took the foolish and gave salvation. And to walk as Christ calls us to walk, to relate and live as Christ calls us to live and relate, means we must remember this truth daily. We can't move on from it. Yeah, that's great. I know that I was a sinner once, but now affirm me. Tell me my goodness. Tell me who I am because I want to know all the good things about me. You've just put yourself on the throne again. No, the truth is, is that you and I deserve nothing. And the grace of God was shed upon us because of God's love and God's power. And we must remember this truth daily to walk as he calls us to walk. 
You and I heard the simple gospel of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, and by God's grace, it gripped our hearts. It showed us that we were rebels in league with Satan himself and drew us in a desire to be God's kingdom citizens in covenant. In using this weak and foolish gospel, God actually shows his power. Listen to what he says to the Corinthian church in the second letter that we read earlier, speaking of the cross. He says this, talking about a situation where he's trying to bring some discipline. He says, I, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Where's that power? Well, he was crucified in weakness, but lives. He's resurrected by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. What is the power of God to Paul? Even amongst the same audience that he was speaking to, it's resurrection, it's salvation, it's being saved by the gospel. It's not the confused, hyper-spiritual displays or worldly strategy that Corinth desired or our world today desires. Christianity is based on a weak and defeated leader, a foolish strategy, a foolish message, and a New Testament message delivered predominantly by a foolish guy named Paul. And yet for 2,000 years, it has drawn men and women from every tribe and tongue under heaven to surrender their lives to Christ as king because God's power is displayed in salvation through the gospel, and nothing else even comes close. If you're here this morning, and you've been walking in rebellion against God, living a life of your own making and your own authority, you must wrestle with this truth, that a man named Jesus of Nazareth that lived 2,000 years ago proclaimed himself to be God in the flesh, he died on a cross declaring that it was the sacrifice that paid the price of the sins of his people so that they could be reconciled to God. He then rose from the dead three days later proving his power and 40 days on from that he ascended to the heavens and declared through his people that he now reigns as king over our lives and he proclaimed that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead for the way we have lived our lives. And only those whom he has saved by his power will be saved from an eternal hell of punishment for our rebellion against our creator. And so as Paul proclaimed today, friend, if you are here and that is you wrestling with that truth, do not harden your hearts. You cannot dismiss this. You must call it foolishness and a lie and be vehemently hateful towards it, or you must accept it and surrender your life to its central figure. If you would like to do so, any of those pastors that will be standing up here with me at the end would love to speak with you after the service about what it is to walk with Christ and surrender your life to him. For those of us that declare to already be Christ's own this morning, I want to ask you, have you moved on from the cross believing you deserve more? Are you ready for a gospel that affirms you and tells you that in reality God saved you because you're just so gosh darn special? If so, I pray today's word convicts your heart to be humbled before the cross of Calvary. For the parents in the room, 
What gospel are you selling your children? Is it Jesus Christ and him crucified or the adoration and glorification of your special little person? Do you tell them that they're a sinner in need of salvation? Or do you spend your whole life helping them avoid that fact? If so, I pray today's word convicts your heart to be humbled before the cross of Calvary. For no one in this church, no one on this planet is righteous enough to gain their own salvation. Salvation is only by God's powerful grace that he shed upon us even though we didn't deserve it. And if we take this message as Paul did to the local church at Corinth, friends, if we employ it in this church and in our families and in our relationships, we will see the power of God present. We will see the power of God's reconciliation, the power of God's love, the power of God's salvation among us and exuding from us as he uses us to spread the gospel. May we purpose to base our faith on Jesus Christ and him crucified and nothing else all the days of our earthly and eternal lives. And as we leave this place this morning, Let's purpose to know Jesus and him crucified and let's purpose to follow in the example of Paul to go to all those around us and declare our own foolishness and weakness and yet the power of God in the midst of our lives through salvation. And let's do so with abandon. We might be fearful and trembling as Paul was wondering what response we will get, but friends, this is why we've been saved, is to declare the same message, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified that Paul did to the Corinthians. For it's through the basic declaration of the gospel and the testimony that we each have of God's salvation in our lives that God will affect salvation in others. Let's go forth and do just that. Amen? Amen. Well, let's now remember that God's power is displayed in salvation by going to the table of communion and reminding ourselves of the cross where he gave his body and his blood for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for the very obviously foolish message, messenger, and strategy that makes it so that your power is amplified and highlighted. Lord, you did not save through earthly means. You did not save through our earthly logic or reasoning. You saved because you saved and because you are powerful. Salvation, your word says, belongs to the Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would humble us with this fact this morning, that you would help us be reminded that we are just like Paul. We are foolish vessels, and yet we have been given the inheritance of an eternal kingdom and an all-powerful God. Help us to not sit in a place of, of shame or, or self-concern, but in a place of rejoicing because of the grace that you've shown us. And help us to understand the weight of that grace, that because we've been given that grace, it is our job to then take it to the world around us and proclaim the same truth that Paul was proclaiming to the church at Corinth. Help us, Lord, to be your messengers. Help us to base our own walk in the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Pray this in Jesus' name.